Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're going to be in Matthew 12. We're not going to get through the whole monster chapter. It's like 50 verses or something like that. And, we, and there's just so much here that's worth digging into around Sabbath and all that sort of thing. So it starts off the first two verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look. Your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So in Matthew so far, we've had um, the last few chapters have really been about this escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And we see in chapter 10, Jesus warns his disciples that this is going to happen. In chapter 11, we see the attacks being ones of presumption and expectations about what they think Jesus should be doing. Um, and then in chapter 12, we're going to move straight on to hatred. They're going to actually start to hate Jesus at this point. Um, it's really easy to paint the Pharisees as cartoon characters and that they just don't know and they don't get it. But I, I think God put this stuff in the Word because our tendency naturally as human beings is to be like the Pharisees. And we have to really check that in the kingdom of God sometimes or we become those things that we, we, shouldn't, we don't want to be. And we don't want to be in that kind of environment. So now we get a lesson on the Sabbath, synagogue, and I think how the church is going to start to come out of all of this in these verses. Verse 1 gives us a context at that time. Matthew uses at that time as like a new section. So we don't know how much time has passed in the ministry. Uh, we do get some hints from other gospels. Uh, that this is right after Jesus is getting out of Jerusalem. So he's been in Jerusalem. We know that from the book of John. And he had some conflicts with the Pharisees. So he's just taken off and going somewhere else. And, and it says he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Apparently he got into it with the Pharisees kind of at Sabbath service in the morning in, from the book of John. And then he's leaving Jerusalem and walking through these grain fields when that happens. His disciples get hungry. They start to pluck grains to eat. Now, if this is the case and Jesus is moving from town to town to town throughout Israel, announcing this kingdom of God that he talked about in chapters 5 through 7, then we have to understand first here, when the Pharisees come and accuse them of being doing something illegal, that means that they're calling them criminals, right? So we have to understand the law before we know if this is a truthful statement or not. So gleaning, or one thing is, are they stealing grain from a grain field? And in America today, if you go into somebody's field and you start grabbing their crops, that's theft and that's not good. It's, that's not the case in Jewish law. And, the, in, and this is not stealing at all. It's, what's, it's a principle of gleaning and we get it from the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy 23, I'm just going to read you the law of gleaning. Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. When thou comest into the standing corn of your neighbor... 
then you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not move a sickle in your neighbor's corn. In other words, if you're hungry and you're walking through somebody's grape field, you can grab a few grapes with your hand, but you can't go in and harvest their grapes. And so to bring in the sickle is to actually start harvesting the crops. So you can get what you need to eat, but you can't go and feed yourself. Or if you're in the grocery store, you can grab a peanut from the barrel, but don't start filling your cart and walking out the door with it. And it's the same kind of principle, and I'm not advocating for theft in grocery stores. Um, but in the Jewish culture, that's exactly what this was, is that you could just grab a handful. In fact, good and righteous farmers would leave the corners of their fields unharvested so that people who were poor could go and get food. This was their welfare program. So you got these disciples, they're hungry, they have need, and they, and, and they grab some of these grains. So technically gleaning is not illegal and there's not a problem with it. So it's not what they're doing. The problem the Pharisees have is what, when they're doing it. You're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So the, the particular question here, some of you may have just read it that way from the start, but they're saying that you're breaking the Sabbath. So let's look at the Sabbath law. In verse 2, that Sabbath question, uh, this is from Exodus 20, 8 through 10, and I think you know these because this is just the, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work. On the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord unto your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your foreigner or anybody residing in your towns. For in the sixth day the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. If God can make the entire universe in six days, you can get your work done in six days. And all God asks for, this is one of the primary core staples of what the God of creation asks from human beings. Make a Sabbath day, one day a week, and keep it holy. Set it apart. It's God's day. It's nobody else's day. So oddly enough, this is the thing that most people get lax on. Like this is the number one thing that believers and Jews start to get weird about. The Pharisees, after Babylon getting exiled and coming back to the land, the, the Pharisees' job was to make sure that people didn't break these laws because the Jews didn't want to get exiled again. So in the name of safety, keep the Sabbath. And that's what's going through the Pharisees' head is it's their job to make sure everybody else in the world follows their rules. So they start to construct a set of rules that instead of catching people working on the Sabbath, we're going to just catch people before that gets to be a problem. Anything that begins to look like work, we're going to start stopping that. So we're going to get people when the intention starts to happen. What happens then is humans make a bunch of rules and traditions around things that aren't in the Bible. And it happens in every denomination across history for the last six, seven, 7,000 years. It's just how humans are. So Jesus says that in this day of rest, the word Sabbath in Hebrew actually means um, set apart or consecrated. It's a day of rest. It means to rest on this day that's set apart. So to keep the Sabbath is to take a break or to rest. So Jesus in chapter 11, we just got done with this teaching last chapter in verse 21. If you skim back a few paragraphs, Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as soon as he teaches that, we get these Pharisees in this situation. And that's not an accident from the writer. This is what Matthew's trying to do. He's saying the teaching of Jesus and then he's showing us the example of how that plays out. So if Jesus says, I'm your rest and I have an easy burden for you, and then he goes right into this situation where these people are complaining that they're not taking rest and they're putting a burden on the disciples. The burden is you should starve to death versus eat. 
right? You should go hungry on the Sabbath and be uncomfortable versus feasting in the presence of your Lord. And so they put that out there. So, <laughs> again, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend the Pharisees, but I want us to understand where they're coming from. Um, on that one day a week, and I don't want to minimize, this is a really important idea. God commands, it's not if you want to or if you feel like it, he commands rest on this day. And then he gives them things to do. So he doesn't just say don't do something and then he doesn't fill it with something else. He says don't do something and fill it with reason, study the word, pray together, fellowship together, worship together. Come to the temple and have not just your burnt offering in the morning, but peace offerings and have a giant barbecue all day. And let the whole city be filled with the fragrance of the barbecue of the temple. It's a holy day. And when you do that right, what an amazing time to just take a day and hang out with people. So we think today rest is to sit in our room and look at a glowing screen. That's not rest. Rest in the biblical sense was to gather with people and not worry about everything the world puts on your shoulders. Just take a day and relax and chill from all that. So we make a vow to follow God and this is God's law and it's not a burden, it's a joy and it's a blessing. It's amazing that any other master, if we bow or serve or submit to that master, they make demands of us. God's demand is for us to actually be blessed. And if we enjoy that blessing, then we go through the week and we're a different person. So elsewhere we see that those elements of coming together, worshiping, prayer, food, fellowship, studying of the word are what should be filling that time. So this sweet blessing of Sabbath gets turned into something that's kind of ugly by the Pharisees because it has to be Sabbath in their way. And this is a challenge. Like for, I think for every church, this is a challenge. Um, so Jesus is going to respond to this. Um, but notice that, that when the Pharisees saw it in verse 2, <laughs> again, I love these context things. This means that on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are following Jesus around and accusing him of things and his disciples, right? They're they're, this is what they do on the Sabbath is they run around and tell other people how to live. And I don't know about you, but if you've been to church where somebody does that, it, it's in most small churches. And I hope that we can avoid that here as long as possible. But people that just come to church and think it's their job to tell other people what to do and how to do it. And that's the Holy Spirit's job in our life. That's not an argument to permit sin. It's an argument to just relax from telling other people what to do for one day. So they're following him around. They're looking for mistakes. In chapter 11, <laughs> the critiques of the Pharisees is that Jesus wasn't doing what the, he, they think he should be doing. And in this chapter, it's that they're, that they're doing things they shouldn't be doing according to the Pharisees. Did I say that right? Last chapter, it was that they weren't doing something. And in this chapter, it's that they are doing something. Either way, you just can't make these people happy. Um, so we just saw the light yoke. This is the heavy yoke. Uh, so it's supposed to be Sabbath, a sign to Israel of God's blessing. The, here's, the, here's the heart of God in Exodus 31. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. So this is a serious thing for God. And the Pharisees are basically saying, you're breaking it. You should, I mean, arguably, they're saying the disciples should be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done six days, but in the seventh, the seventh, that Sabbath of rest, holy is, is holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be surely put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generation as a perpetual covenant. So let's be real clear about this. If Jesus says, I'm the Sabbath, he's making a new covenant. The original covenant of Sabbath was with the people of Israel. It's a covenant with Israel. 
of all the Ten Commandments, all ten of them except the Sabbath are repeated by Jesus as we need to keep this commandment. And on the Sabbath, he modifies it. It's the only commandment he modifies, that he says, I'm your rest. In other words, you're not going to the temple to give sacrifices under the covenant of Jesus. The perpetual covenant is with the Jews or with Israel. Um, Exodus 31, 17, it's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. And in, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and he was refreshed. So this is supposed to be something that makes Israel stand out from all the nations. And as Christians, immediately the disciples, instead of giving up the one day a week, they said, the one day a week of rest in Jesus is something we need to keep doing. So Christians today, we don't do Sabbath on Saturday, we do it on Sundays. And that has changed. But the idea of committing one day a week to the Lord, the heart of God hasn't changed a bit. So, but the rabbis make laws. Okay, and I, I know I'm taking time with this, but it's good context. Rabbinical laws in the Mishnah, it's massive. The Mishnah is 800 pages. There's 1,500 amendments to the law in the Mishnah. And so this is a rabbinical book where they started just adding up all these things. And here's a few of the laws. You're not supposed to walk more than 1,999 steps on Sabbath. And, this is, and that's because that's considered a journey, and you're not supposed to take a journey on Sabbath. Writing, I wonder what they would do with cars. Like, does it count if you're in a car? Anyways, if you write, your writing is work on the Sabbath. So you're not supposed to write two letters or more. And it gets, the writing stuff gets really annoying. And you're not supposed to write in more than one ink color. And you're not supposed to write in, so you can't do two letters in Hebrew and then two letters in Greek. So it doesn't count if you do different languages either. Like, it gets ridiculous. And this is all in the Mishnah. You can write in the dust because the dust isn't permanent, which tells you something about when Jesus wrote in the dust. We won't go to that story, but writing in the dust is not breaking the Sabbath because it's not permanent writing. This is the Mishnah. You, the idea of plucking heads of grain, then, they count that as reaping. And rubbing away the husks so you can eat it, they count that as threshing. So, there, so with all of these amendments, the disciples have broken a ton of them. They've been walking probably more than 2,000 steps. They have been reaping and they have been threshing. And so all of these things, they're not biblical laws, but they're, missional, they're, they're rabbinical laws. So when bad things happen, human tendency is to make a rule about that. Well, we need to make a rule. Right? You can't come in here if you don't have shoes on because the dirt gets our carpets dirty. Right? So we need to make rules around stuff versus common sense and kindness and just respect for others being the rule. Um, they start making all these things. So just to make the point that we still do this today, in Alaska, it's illegal to give alcohol to moose. What? Which I was just looking up silly laws online. I think it's a good idea, but why would you make a law around that? And what about bears? Does that mean bears can have some, some alcohol um, or rabbits or things like that? Grant's just back there giggling. Um, with the rabbis, you couldn't carry things on the Sabbath. This is how ridiculous this gets. But you could carry things on your girdle. So what would happen is, because they didn't want people getting buckets of water from the well, so you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. So what they would do is they would tie a knot on their girdle tie the girdle to the bucket, and then lower the bucket to get their water out of it. And so with every one of the rules, if people's hearts aren't to, to do it, then the rabbis would just keep making more rules. No, you, know, you can't do that. Um, so 
It's a crime to defend yourself on the Sabbath, which is why Pompey in his journals said he attacked Jerusalem and conquered it on the Sabbath because he knew that the rabbis wouldn't let themselves defend themselves on the Sabbath. So it, it actually exposed them to being killed. So these rabbinical rules were, not only are they cute and funny for us, but they actually lead to death and destruction when they get too extreme. Bad government leads to hurt people, and it just happens that way. So all of these extra laws are needed because they saw that the hearts of the people weren't to just give God his Sabbath. So it's tough because we can't make rules. Like we could make a rule like you got to be here every week for Bible study. But as Christians, we don't do that because our rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be here because you want to be here, not because you're being forced to be here or somebody's calling you up at home saying, what's going on? Um, though we'll call Mike all the time and just, you know, What's going on, Mike? Get over here. So they got to draw the line around this work thing. Um, all right. I'm good to move on, but do you want a couple more of the stupid state laws? Yeah. Okay. Alabama, you cannot make a fake, you can't wear a fake mustache to church <laughs> if it's intended to make people laugh. Where do, and you wonder what's the story around. So these are just old laws that are still on the book. Um, in Rehoboth, Delaware, there's a city ordinance that says you can't whisper in church. Just another, I, I was like, that's probably a good idea. Massachusetts, you can't eat peanuts in church, which makes you wonder, like, who is eating peanuts in church? Um, and then in New York City, this is still on the books in New York City, you cannot intentionally fart during a church service. So, I, you know, it, Maybe they should go after people under some of those things. But if your intention is to disturb a church service, we've made these laws too. Um, Jesus is going to deal directly with this heavy burden because at some point all these little laws become a burden and they become something where people live life by it. And, and believers have to make a decision. Do they bow to a God or do they bow to the Pharisees? And did other people make these rules? And then the third option, or do you bow to yourself and you're just your own law? So you got to kind of pick one. Mark 2.27, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is the ministry he's going about. We don't get that passage in Matthew, right, at this, in this chapter. Um, so what's interesting, another thing before we go to verse 3, it's interesting that Jesus' own disciples were hungry. Like if you think about it for a second, he made food come out of thin air for thousands of people but his disciples get to live with some hunger in their gut, which says maybe poverty is not such a horrible thing That for Jesus' own disciples. And, and Jesus didn't do miracles to serve himself or his closest followers, which shows a deep humility. And he's not doing his miracles to serve himself. And I just thought that was a really nice thought. Um, so the accusation, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. And the question then is, okay, whose law? Whose law are we dealing with? So here's Jesus' response. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor, those for those, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that, the Sabbath, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Wow, there's just, all right. Verse three, but he said. The word but there is a Greek word. In the Hebrew, we don't often see that. 
it indicates Jesus is not in agreement with the Pharisees. So just linguistically, that's the building point. But, he said, means we're about to hear his counterpoint. Uh, He says twice, have you not read? Uh, This is hard to explain, but there is no greater insult to an academic than to accuse them of not having read something, right? And and if you go to like get-togethers or coffee cotillions with academics, one of the things they'll do is they'll say, have you read this? Have you read this? And it's part of how you know who's in your field. But to say, oh, you, if you've read this, you would know something. Um, so he's accusing the people that think they're smart of being not so smart. So these are not, this is not a slight backhanded thing. This is an all-out assault on their credibility. So when Jesus says that, when he gets people assaulting him with their rules, Jesus' response is not polite. It's not gracious and kind, and there's no glowing airbrushed halo around his head. He's absolutely attacking the Pharisees when he says, have you not read? Because they're supposed to be the experts in the law that tell everybody else what it says. So, and then in verse verse 7, he says, have you not read twice? But notice in verse 7, it said, if you had known, there he actually accuses them of full-on ignorance. You don't know what you're talking about. And when you say that to somebody that's in that expert position, you're undermining their authority in front of crowds of people. That's absolutely fighting language, right? He's not angry and yelling at them, but he's using language that would completely cut under their authority. And just on a human level, this is why the Pharisees want to kill the guy. It's because he says things like that. And I think sometimes in the English we can just read over that. Um, But this is how Jesus responds to legalists. He's not nice to them. Compare this to the grace and mercy he has with the woman accused of uh, harlotry. Right? And he just brings her under his wing. The humble Jesus brings close, the arrogant he goes after him. So you just, knowing the character of God, he doesn't have a lot of patience for people that want to tell other people how to do things. He's made his law. He doesn't need us to go after each other. You know, we are accountable before him for how we live. So this is how he responds. He gives three arguments. Argument number one, in verse three and four, um, the David, what David did when he was hungry is in 1 Samuel 21, if you want to cross-reference and study that during the week. Um, here's the weird thing. David was also exiled from the established rulers of Jerusalem that were taken over the town. David was also hungry. He also had followers with him escaping Jerusalem while the established authority is chasing behind him. So the tradi- Jesus is pointing to an example that's a perfect fit for what's happening right now. And so this tradition that was supposed to honor God, David breaks it because human need comes before traditions. And it makes a lot of sense. God doesn't expect people to starve out to death on a day we're supposed to be worshiping him. We're supposed to be celebrating in front of God on that day. It's not the day to have silly little rules. So there's a scriptural basis for what he's doing. And again, Jesus points people back to the scriptures. This is how Jesus responds to critics. He points to the word of God. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of God for it. And on some occasions, verse 8, he declares, and oh, by the way, I am the authority here. Like you're arguing with the person who wrote the law. And I think that, so in in that sense, this, uh, this example is just perfect. So the showbread that David eats is, isn't just grain from the field. He's actually doing something worse than what Jesus' followers are doing. The showbread is in the temple. There's 12 loaves of bread 
representing the tribes of Judah, and those breads are supposed to be baked fresh and put in there every day. It would be absolutely sacrilegious to eat that bread if you're locked into legalism. And Jesus' point here is that when David's men were hungry, like the symbols can be eaten because it's food and there's hungry people. So you don't get all caught up on some of those things. So the first rationale that Jesus gives is that basic human need trumps ceremony and symbolic needs. The ceremony and the symbols are wonderful and they're really important. But the hunger and the human need comes before any symbols we have for our faith. So David doesn't do it lightly. He asks the priests. He gives context for it. But everything's mirroring what's going on with Jesus right now. Here's the other thing. It's likely, or we can ask this question when we get to heaven, it could even be in the same field, the same location. They're both fleeing is uh, Jerusalem. There's a gate that goes out through the Hinnom and Kidron Valley. So it's likely they're actually walking on the same geography as David's Benz or when this happened or in very similar places. So it's a really interesting comparison. And, you know, practical application for the church, we should be here for people, not people here for us. Like, it just shouldn't matter to us if more people or less people show up on a given Sunday. Whoever shows up, we should be here to love on them and serve them. And I hope that that's caring for others comes before traditions. I tell my, my grandma story. My grandma's passed away, bless her heart. We would go up to North Dakota and visit her, and we would go into church. Have I told this story before? So Steph and I go, when we first got married, we go up to visit Grandma, and she takes us to church with her, and she's very proud to have her grandchildren along with her to church, and it's wonderful. But there's this young couple with three little kids that have sat in like the third row back from the, from the pulpit, and Grandma goes up and starts tapping her cane on the side of the pew. And these were clearly new people to the church because they didn't understand that was grandma's pew. And, she, and we were like, Grandma, don't worry about it. Literally, there were empty seats all around this family. Two pews in front, two pews in back, a couple pews behind us. We could have sat anywhere, but that was the seat we needed to sit in. And she just kept tapping. No, 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 they can, they can move. And literally, I'm like looking at the, guy, the dad of the family and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, and you're just going, come on, because that's the opposite. I, I really think, and my grandma was a godly woman in a, in a lot of different ways, but there is a danger for godly people to think their traditions and their way of doing things should trump caring for other people. Caring for people just comes first, and it begins that way. So his argument, his second rationale is in verse 5. First rationale, when people are hungry, let's put people first, and let's break our rules if we have to, if, if we have somebody and we, that comes in here and they have a splitting headache, maybe we don't do music on a Sunday morning, you know? We need to be somewhat flexible with that kind of thing. Second rationale, God's work gets done on the Sabbath and that's not an issue, right? So as he breaks this down, verse 5, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and they're blameless. So on the Sabbath, people would bring in double the offerings. So priests work double hard on the Sabbath. Our pastors get up and teach on Sunday. Like, that's their primary work day. And then they're caring for people all day and answering questions and they're counseling. But Sabbaths are heavy-duty work days for clergy. And Jesus' point is that's not a sin for them because they're giving their lives to service. And, nobody, and it, so they're, they're profaning the Sabbath, but at the same time, they're blameless. There's no sin in doing that. So this is a great point, right? <clears throat> Those that are serving the God aren't, at fault when they do work on the Sabbath. So not only should we care for people in their hunger first, but 
and then in verse 6, the, the, in this place, there is one greater than the temple. These men are serving Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if these men are serving me, they're actually acting as priests right now. And they're, the work that they do is important, and they're not guilty for doing work on the Sabbath because they're actually with one that's greater than the temple. By the way, in Jewish culture, saying anything's greater than temple is, is a claim to godhood because there's God, there's the temple, there's the priests and the Pharisees, and then there's everybody else. So ranking system, Jesus just put himself above the temple, which goes back to chapter 11 where they were asking him, are you the coming one? And it's another way to answer, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. So he's making a claim to godhood at some level here. Uh, and the only thing uh, you know, second to the, that the temple is second to is God himself. <clears throat> at the end of time in Revelation uh, 21-22, there won't be a temple. Um, the, the, the account there says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So when Jesus says later on, and he says, You're gonna, I'm going to tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it, he's talking about himself. <clears throat> but right here we see him planting the seeds for that discussion and that example. So he's accusing these people of, of, of sin and they're actually doing what's holy. Sorry, I got a cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Third rationale. And this is the one that gets him in trouble. First rationale, people come first. Second rationale, priests work on the Sabbath and that's not a big deal, so get over yourselves. Third rationale, I'm the Messiah and I'm bigger than the temple. If you had known what this means in verse 7, an assumption they don't get it is going back to chapter 9, 13. If you just flip back a page, Jesus challenged them to read this scripture back in chapter 9, verse 13. He knows they haven't done it. If you had known what this means, at this point, they, he gave them a, a homework assignment. And he's, he knows, because he's Jesus, they didn't do the homework assignment. They didn't go back and research that passage. And if they had, that passage was chastising priests for being a heavy burden on their people. And what God's will was, was mercy, not sacrifice. So the process of the sacrificial system is not as important as loving people. So he knows they haven't read it. And the context of that situation back in chapter 9 is Matthew had just gotten saved and he was throwing a big farewell to the world party, like I'm done with this life party. And everybody's celebrating and they're excited. And then the Pharisees show up and they're all upset about who's sitting in the same room together. You know, how are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? So this Hosea 6.6 quote is reprimanding that kind of behavior. Jesus told them to go read it and study it and that was their answer. Here he's saying, looks like you didn't read it because you still don't get it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is actually, the word there, God emphasizes this mercy, love. And in the Hebrew, it's a really unique word that means more like loving kindness. That there's this attitude of just being nice to people and, and being a decent human. And that's what God wanted. And it expands the idea that nobody knows the Father but the Son, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. If you'd known what this means, I desire these things. Um, and, and Jesus is saying, I'm the one who understands the loving kindness of God, and you don't. And you don't get it. So if they had looked it up, they would get it. And, they, and if they looked it up, they would be joining Jesus' disciples. They wouldn't be accusing them. So, and then he says, you've condemned the guiltless. So Jesus is there declaring who's guilty and who's not. This would have ticked off the Pharisees. 
Um, but the, you know, the traveling critic brigade is, is then, if they're accusing people that are guiltless, Jesus just said they bore false witness, which means they're breaking another commandment. So instead of like being nice and friendly and trying to find common ground with the Pharisees, he says, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're guilty of sin. And, and you're the ones that should be condemned. Turns it right back on them. So this is fighting. Um, <clears throat> for those people that like to make peace or like to avoid conflict, chapter 10, chapter 11. For those people that are God made to be fighters, chapter 12. This is how God fights back is that he gives them exactly what they were trying to dish out on the disciples. It's actually kind of a perfect symmetry. Like they're condemning the disciples of breaking the law, and Jesus explains it to them, shows them the word of God, and then he actually says, no, actually you're breaking the law because you're bearing false witness against people. You're calling people guilty that aren't. And, and in that, you're guilty of sin too. So their lack of loving kindness leads them to sin even though they think they're doing good. And this is heavy concept that you don't usually get to, right? <clears throat> there are lots of people in the church that think they're going doing good things, but in their anxiousness to do what they think is good and not what's biblical, they're actually doing harm to the people of God. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. So we can understand them as much as we can because we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be so anxious to get other people to do things our way that we actually bring dishonor to our God. Rationale, there's actually kind of a fourth one here. Verse 8, for even the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. There's this direct, unequivocal claim of deity that comes at the end of this. Jesus has the authority to direct his disciples because he has authority over Sabbath. He's the God that created it, and he's the God that made it. He's the incarnate image of God. And to say Jesus was just a nice guy or a friendly teacher does not fit verse 8 at all. He's not just a nice guy and a friendly teacher. He's God incarnate, and he's calling himself that. So that's the claim of Christianity, is that this is what this looks like. Jesus is the image of God, which means he's better than the ark, which is an image of, the, of God's plan. <clears throat> he's the manifest imagio dios, right? So at this point in time, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's greater than the temple. Um, and, and at this time in history... The, the ark and the temple uh, used to have the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God over it, tabernacle and the early temple. At this period in test history, the Holy Spirit has left the temple. There's no fire burning there. There's no Shekinah glory. And frankly, the ark of the covenant historically was not in the temple at this period of history. So Jesus is basically taking it outside. So the last rationale might be Jesus saying, I'm God and don't question me. Right? This isn't where you go. So... Instead, he should, he should recognize that God doesn't... Jesus said before, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. <clears throat> Another cool part about this passage, Jesus actually perfectly follows the Deuteronomic law here. Deuteronomic law says, if a false witness, which is what he's accusing them of, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him for wrongdoing, then here's what should happen when false witness is born. Both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord. Jesus brought them to the word of God. Before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. We have both priests and we have judges on both sides of this equation. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who's testified falsely against his brother, this is Deuteronomy 19 again. So the careful inquiry is to go back to the word of God. Jesus showed him the story about David. He showed him the fact that priests work on the Sabbath. 
And then he says, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Jesus accuses them of breaking law, which is exactly what they were trying to do to the disciples. So Jesus perfectly follows Deuteronomy, and he does it just so smooth, right? He identifies the false witness. They both stand before God, Jesus and the Pharisees. They make inquiry, David and the Sabbath, and then Jesus does to them what they intended to do. He accuses them of breaking the law. And Jesus explains how mercy is a better way than sacrifice. He actually errs in their favor a little bit, and he shows mercy. So don't bicker with God. He's operating at a different level. Don't pick a fight with Jesus because he's he wrote the law in the first place, and he keeps his own law, and I just think that's awesome. So then we get to healing on the Sabbath. This is Jesus. Okay, if you think Jesus was trying to make friends with these people, then you don't do this. When he departed from there, so now when he departed from there is an overlapping transition. This is immediately after the cornfield or the grain field. He went into their synagogue, there being the very Pharisees that are accusing him. He turns around, goes into their synagogue, and behold, check this out. That's Greek for check this out. Behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, the Pharisees asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? This is a, this isn't a rhetorical question. This is a challenge question. So is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Clearly in the Mishnah, it is not lawful to do the work of healing on the Sabbath unless someone's life is in danger. So that's the Mishnah law in this, that they might accuse him. The reason they picked the withered hand, uh, withered there means dry or it's the blood isn't flowing to it anymore. In other words, this man's life wasn't in danger. He just had a withered hand. So to heal him on the Sabbath is totally illegal under the Mishnah law. So this is where they're trying to get Jesus. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who, who has one sheep that if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, you don't lay hold of it and pull it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Boom. Like this is just Jesus laying it down. Like he does this in their face. We see the word behold in verse 10 and that transitional sentence of nine. He does this right in front of his accusers. Watch this. You think picking grain on the Sabbath is bad? Let me go in here and show you, show you what, what's up with that. So <clears throat> Matthew's writing to show a rising opposition to Jesus from, from the religious establishment. And he's doing this very effectively. Jesus, despite the rejection in this case, he keeps going to synagogue for the Sabbath. Why does Jesus go to synagogue? If he's God himself, he's not learning anything at church on Sunday. Like, this isn't for his benefit. He's, you know, it's not that he likes the worship music or not. But this idea that Jesus is modeling that he keeps God's commands, even he, as God, he keeps his own commandments. The Sabbath is holy, set it apart. It's not about you. It's a day that's sacred. And when we see Jesus modeling that for his disciples, that he actually goes to, to regular public worship throughout the Gospels, we see evidence that Jesus followed the feasts and he followed the law just like every other good Jew would do. But he doesn't buy into these thousands of Mishnah laws that have been added to God's word. And Jesus, therefore, attends synagogue 
as an image of submission to God's will. We could get into a whole discussion about submission. At this point, Jesus does it because God asked for it. And I think that's all the discussion that this passage really calls for. God says, do it. Jesus does it. And he lives a perfect and a blameless life. So while they're accusing Jesus, back in their synagogue, they had a guy that needed healing. Think about this contrast that Matthew's laying out here. These Pharisees are more concerned about yelling at people in the fields than they are about taking care of the people in their own synagogue. And I just felt really convicted by that. Like, at what point do I wake up in the morning and I'm praying for the people I fellowship with? And I'm saying, Lord, how can I take care of this? And is there anything I can do to help so-and-so? Is there, can I just call and be a blessing? I still get Paul Campy from your church. He just texts me and he's like, I'm praying for you today, Sean. What a blessing. You're thinking, what a godly man. I'm, boy, am I not. I should really start doing that too. But the loving, kind, yeah, the loving kindness is contagious. When I get loving kindness, I want to give it to other people. These Pharisees don't have loving kindness. They're not even taking care of the people in their own church, their own synagogue. So this withered, dry hand, not supposed to be healed. Jesus just does it right in front of their face. Um, he prioritizes mercy, so he's practicing what he preaches. Um, and then in verse 11, it says sheep. He gives us an example, a very practical image. Most people in the first century had some livestock. It's how you got your milk. It's how you got some wool. It's how you got eggs. So this idea that a sheep would be something that people would have would be, you know, sheep get into trouble all the time because they're dumb and they do really dumb things. And his point is, like, wouldn't you just take three seconds and save your sheep versus letting them die? And if that's the case, why in the world wouldn't we just take three seconds and help each other out and send that text to each other, be nice or pray with somebody or be kind? Therefore, is his conclusion for all this, if saving humans is better than livestock, verse 12, then, and, and that's legal under Mosaic law to save the sheep. So he's referencing the law again. It shows that the, the hypocrites will save sheep, but they won't save other people. You care more about animals than you do about humans. You're a hero. Thanks, brother. Um, verse 10, the question that was given was, is it lawful to heal? Notice that Jesus broadens that out when he says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So basically speaking, Jesus answers that it's way more than just healing people. To do any kind of good on the Sabbath is lawful, and, and it's a good thing to do that. So when we plot and plan to be nice to people and do nice things for people, God looks at that and, and smiles. And it seems like such a simple thing, but God looks at that plotting and planning to do good and he sees that as a blessing. And I think of this when I go over to people's houses and they've, they're hosting and there's little bowls with cheese in it and lettuce and tomatoes and everything's ready. And you just think, what a blessing that is. What a gift that is from one of God's servants to another of God's children. And to do that work is, a, is not only lawful, it's a good thing for God to do it. And so Jesus expands it. It's more than just healing people. It's to do any kind of good for other people on the Sabbath. Isn't that what this day is for? So we see that, again, the Sabbath is not explicitly reinforced because Jesus doesn't expect his disciples to go to synagogue. That tie is broken. But he does expect his people to find him as their Sabbath. And that hasn't gone away at all. So don't think I came to destroy the law, including the one about the Sabbath or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. So we see this idea that in most of the commandments, Jesus expands them and says it's a matter of the heart. 
So when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't murder. Not only don't murder, don't hate people. It's about your heart. I think he's doing the same thing here. It's not just keep the Sabbath. It's we should keep the Sabbath when it comes to our heart too. So anyways, he reins it in a little bit. Says, stretch out your hand. I think that's interesting. In other healings that Jesus had, he would touch them. And in this one, he doesn't touch them. He commands them to stretch out their own hand. So in some way, Jesus actually doesn't break even the Mishnah on this because he doesn't lift a finger, right? He just speaks with his words, which isn't against the law, in the, even in the Mishnah law. So they can't really accuse. Jesus is keeping it under the radar. They can't really accuse him of doing anything if you look at the text carefully. He didn't actually do anything. He just said something. So if this hand gets healed... Nobody debates that. The Pharisees don't debate it. There's no evidence in rabbinical writing that they doubted that Jesus could heal people. But if he could heal people, then who are they accusing of doing bad when the healing happens? And the answer is, in the writings, they accuse Jesus of being a servant of the devil and that he was a son of Beelzebub. So they don't doubt that the healing just happened. They doubt how it happened because they just can't picture a God that would be loving. And it's amazing. That, so the God doesn't meet their expectations. So you think of Sabbath and you think this isn't the kind of day that we should be marching around feeling superior to people. It's not the kind of day that we should be accusing people of things. It is the kind of day we should be constantly going back to the Word of God, which is what Jesus just did. He gave him a Bible study. It's the kind of day that we should be caring for other people, not trying to network with them. Like this isn't a day to advance our own causes. This is a day to submit to the Lord. So Jesus throws his total authority of the whole thing and it says, and he stretched it out and it was restored as whole to the other. So we have a Jesus that's completely a God. So I don't know. I look at all this. We don't get any reaction from the person that got healed. Notice that that character's not even, there's no response. And Jesus just comes into their synagogue and he does the work of a pastor. He teaches the word and he heals people. And he just comes in and he does it. And I just think that the, the way in which Jesus comes in and he just takes authority of the whole situation, um, I wonder, like, at least for us, and, and when we think about what happens on a Sunday for us, there should be the teaching of the word of God and there should be ministry to other people. And it should just be a day that we come in and it's not about us, it's about helping other people. Jesus shared the law and then he meets the needs which is what the Pharisees should have been doing instead of running out to the cornfields to accuse people. And you just think that's kind of an interesting thing. So we were at a, a thing this week um, and met with a group of people. <laughs> and I won't say names because it's on the podcast. We had this lady that they're going around the room introducing everybody. And the, the last person in the group was a pastor. So they had a pastor on this council thing, this board, and the pastor just says, yeah, I pastor a small little church, and he didn't, he didn't brag about himself. He was pretty modest and whatever. Well, the lady across the table goes, no, 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 no. I need to tell you, he's not saying what a great guy he is. And she just puffs him up and talks about it. At his church, people get saved. They are, they, the, he gets them in recovery programs, and they're getting off of drugs and alcohol. He goes to the prisons, and the prisoners come out, and they go to his church, and, and this is a church, they are alive, and they are, the Holy Spirit is moving in that church. And she kept saying that church. So at the end, I was like, so do you go to this church? She goes, oh, no, I go to this other church called Stout. <laughs> and I just laughed, and it came out, and sometimes blunt things come out of mouth. And I just said, well, why in the world aren't you going to his church? 
So, and the whole table was like, felt a little uncomfortable, but it's like, they're uncomfortable because they know it's true. You go where the word's being taught and people are getting healed. And anything else, like, why, why aren't you going to there? So if we're not working on blessing each other each week, basking in his word, praying together, fellowshipping together, eating some chili together, like, what are we doing with our time? And is it really Sabbath or is it something we've invented? So the question here for these Pharisees is, you'd think after all this just happened, you'd think they would humble themselves. Wouldn't you? Like if he comes in and he gives you a what to and he critiques your knowledge and he tells you you haven't studied and you haven't read, he's a little sharp with you, he walks in, takes your pulpit, and then he heals somebody, <laughs> like wouldn't you just say, okay, thank you, Rabbi, and become a servant? But they don't, there's no evidence that they do that. They don't repent. They don't worship. They don't praise. They don't celebrate that their brother just got his hand healed. Wouldn't you at least applaud that? Like, oh, Johnny got his hand healed. That hand's been bad for 20 years since the farming accident. But look, he just got healed. What a thing to celebrate. They should be having a feast, but they don't do that at all. This is what they do, verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. That's such a hard sentence. No good deed goes unpunished. And if it's not their way, they don't want it. They don't want people getting healed. This is a tough thing to get. There's a complete lack of faith that leads to this kind of a hard heart. Complete lack of faith. But it all starts with me thinking I'm doing good so much that I can't actually see good when it actually happens right in front of my face. I think all of us, including me, have to work on that and that we're tempted by those things. We're tempted to think our way is better than other people's ways. Heck, we're doing a family church right in our own living room, right? So that's something we have to constantly be checking against the Holy Spirit. Are we on the right path, Lord? Are we doing what you called us to do? The fact that they went out in verse 14 means they left their synagogue. Think of how horrible this is. They're breaking their Sabbath because they're not with their people and they're not fellowshipping. So it's highly <laughs> unlikely that they were against the, the healing, but they're against the person who did it and the day he did it on. What silly things to be against. Have you not read, if you had known, Jesus claims their authority. I think this is part of Jesus not only undermining their authority, but he's taking the priesthood away from the synagogues. So as the resistance to Jesus increases, his authority over his people increases. So he leaves the environment, but when you've got a living God leaving the synagogue, that's more than just the incarnate Jesus walking away from a building. That's a spiritually significant shift that happens with this story. If a church is so calcified that they can't think of God's work as the priority, God's left the building like a long time ago, before Elvis ever did. So this idea that they think of how to destroy him in the Greek there, that they plotted against him, in the Greek it actually means they held a council. They actually had a meeting to discuss this. And then to destroy him in the Greek is apolome. Uh, same root word as apocalypse. Uh, they're going to abolish king. Matthew 5.29 uses the same word, and it's about sending someone to hell. Like their desire is to absolutely destroy or apocalypse Jesus Christ. They're judging him, and they're saying he doesn't belong in our wineskin. This thing he's doing doesn't belong here. So Matthew's linking these teachings. Matthew 10.28 in 39, 
Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to, same word, destroy both soul and body in hell. He who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his self for my sake will find it. Jesus has been teaching this all along. Like you can't be scared of this situation and now Jesus walks right into the situation and there is no evidence of Jesus being afraid of what the Pharisees think. This is a whole group of people plotting how do we kill this guy, right? Not kill, I'm sorry, destroy. They're different words. They're not executing justice here. They're executing anger and frustration. So you'd think it's if you can't beat him, join him, which is the multitudes do, but with the Pharisees, it's if you can't beat him, let's wreck him. So what does Jesus do when they've decided to wreck him? Here's Jesus' reaction. Now we're back to the peacemaker side. But when Jesus knew it, the thing that he knows is they're holding a council to kill him. When he finds this out, he withdraws from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed all of them. I just love this. In the face of so much anger and hate, Jesus just, first of all, it's in your face to say you don't know what you're talking about. It's even more in your face to walk into their synagogue, heal somebody and take charge. It's even more in your face to leave the synagogue and take the whole multitude with you. And then he heals all of them, right? This is the opposite of like heavy metal when they say, you know, kill them all. This is like heal them all. Like he, there's no instance so far in the gospels where Jesus heals everyone. But here he's like, you know what? I'm going to show you on the Sabbath. I'll do more than pick some grains of corn. I'm going to heal this guy and then that guy and that lady and that kid and that person. I'm going to heal everybody. You watch what it looks like to work on the Sabbath because Jesus is our high priest and he's going to work double hard on the Sabbath. So Jesus withdrawing in verse 15, I don't think it's cowardice or strategy. We can talk about that afterwards. Um, There's different takes on it. Is Jesus running because it's not his time yet? Or is he running because he's afraid of what will happen? I don't think the Almighty God's scared of what humans are going to do to him. I think with a word, he can blow them all away. So if anybody has capacity to destroy, it's Jesus. But if it isn't going to happen in the synagogue or the church, then it isn't inspired work that's happening there. God withdraws from the church. There's an image here of what's happening that I think connects to the transition between synagogues and churches. If it's not going to happen here and God goes first to Israel and then to the world, then I'm going to move it out to here and the Holy Spirit is going to land on these people. And the healing that Jesus does is the touch of God fixing people's lives. So he withdraws from a dead church with hard-hearted leaders and he ignites Jesus' ministry and absolutely Jesus' ministry goes on fire that day. And it's a specific and emphatic at addition in verse 15 when Matthew writes, he healed them all, right? So they didn't just follow him. He actually went out and did it. So let him plot away. Jesus is just going to keep doing good. And his good will be so effective, it's going to make him even more mad. Matthew 10, we already, this is just two chapters ago, we got this teaching. Whoever will not receive and hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off from your feet. Jesus is doing exactly what he taught his disciples to do. He teaches them and then he models it. This is what you should do. Let me show you what it looks like. So he finds out they're trying to hate him. He walks out of the building, shakes the dust off his feet. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus is doing exactly what he's told his disciples to do. So you, you try 
sharing Jesus with people, they reject it, you move on. You keep fishing. And you don't worry about any particular fish. You just keep sharing the love of Jesus with people. Great multitudes follow him. I just like the image of the, the Pharisees sitting in their synagogue all by themselves. Like the crowd's clear and all of a sudden it's quiet and they're just kind of looking at each other and there's nobody left in the room. What an awesome moment for, for the story of God to move forward. And of course, I would further anger them. Um, but the wise people, the people that saw the healing, they see the power of God. We're moving on. We're going to hang out where the joy is and where the power is and where the people of God are hanging out. Um, I know when we moved to Ohio, we, were try- we tried almost every church in town in this little small town, and we were just like, oh, we just want to get back to where they're teaching the Bible. So we would drive up to Columbus, which is about an hour away from Athens, just to get to a place where a guy was opening the book and teaching the Bible. And, but at some point when you need that in the morning, like, yeah, we'll drive to get there. And it, it's worth it to us to, to get to a place where we can learn the word every day. Um, uh, when he says, uh, uh, and, and just a, a more support for the he healed them all passage, there's no indication of a new story happening here. It says, but when at the beginning of verse 15. This is all connected. It all happens the same day. So just the fact that he's, he's not only healing on the Sabbath, he's healing everybody on the Sabbath. It's an emphatic piece that gets added there. One wonders, is Jesus trying to antagonize the Pharisees in doing this? Or is he trying to teach them? And I, I think that's a good like, question. What's the heart of God? Is the heart of God, is Jesus right now, is he trying to teach the Pharisees love? And I think that the nature of Jesus is he loves even these Pharisees. And he's trying to show them a new way to live. And he's going out of his way to do it. But wouldn't it be cool if you were, you were a Pharisee in a town and next week at Sabbath, everybody came back to church and they were excited because God had healed them? Wouldn't that be an amazing place to... My whole town just got healed. And you'd think as a Pharisee, like this is a way maybe Jesus is trying to actually reach out to them, but he's not reaching out with them by making them feel good. He's reaching out to them by showing the truth of the scriptures and the healing power of his hand. And I think that that's just this image that God loves these people too. I, I couldn't stop. I'm going to add, uh, I'm going to jump to 2 Samuel chapter 6 if you want to flip back there. I'm going to read a passage from there. I couldn't stop thinking about the expectations and the mirroring of David. Remember David's getting chased by people outside the city and he eats the showbread and he's on the run and he's running from these established people that don't like him anymore. And I couldn't stop thinking of his wife, his first, the, the what's her name, uh, Michal, Michal. And she, you know, is Saul's daughter, and she doesn't like that David just celebrates before the Lord God Almighty. That joy is immature, it's undignified, who do you think you are kind of stuff. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 21, so David said to Michal, his wife, it was before the Lord who chose me and study your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people over Israel. So he's coming home on a victory and he's, the priests are playing music and he's dancing with the music and singing along and he's just enjoying himself. And his wife comes out and she yells at him and it's like, what are you doing? You're king. You should be more dignified than that. And she's barking at him about what she thinks he should be doing. And it's not the law. It's her law. 
And it's the same thing the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. And David's response was, therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this. And I will be humble in my own sight, my own sight. I'm not worried about what you think of me. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, I had no children to the day, had no children till the day of her death. There is a degree to which when people think they should be telling other people how to worship the Lord, if that worship isn't a distraction to others, if that worship isn't keeping people from the Lord God Almighty, there is a freedom in Christ. And David felt a freedom in Yahweh to just love the Lord. And his dignity wasn't his to keep because he'd given his life to God. And I just see that same image here. And when it says he healed them all, I just think of that almost like I'll be even more undignified than this. You know what? Ungodly wife of mine, I'm going to be more that way because I need you to see how little what you just said matters to me because we need to get to know each other. And I think that's what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. You know what? You think you're so smart about your healing stuff? Let me heal everybody to show you how much that doesn't matter to me. And this is the heart of God. So I just, to give my utmost for his highest or to, to, to praise with an audience of one, it doesn't matter what anybody else in the room thinks. It's between me and God, regardless of approval from other humans. And imagine being, in, being one of the people in the room, right? So the Pharisees are back looking at each other in an empty building. But imagine all the people getting up out of their synagogue seats, following Jesus outside. He's like, you need healing? You need healing? And they're like, yeah, like I got, you know, a sore tooth and tooth is fixed. Or, you know, I don't know, premature baldness, baldness is fixed. He's just going and he's just taking care of everything. You know, I'd like a little liposuction here. Fat's gone. Everybody's healed. And just imagine he's going around and he's like a healing machine gun. He's just boom, 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 because it would take hours if this took a long time. His healing had to happen fast to get through if everybody got healed, and even in a small town, but we're just outside Jerusalem. I mean, there's like 300,000 people in Jerusalem. How many thousands went to follow Jesus here? It says the multitudes, which indicates a very large number of people. So Jesus, maybe he was healing in groups, like you, 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 and you, and you, your diabetes is gone. It's gone. Like, this is power healing like we haven't seen in the Gospels so far. And Matthew gives us these cue words, but imagine being one of these people where just the whole town's getting healed of everything that ails them. Stomach aches, toe burns, regrowing hands, regrowing fingers. You know, all the carpenters are happy. Jesus had a heart for carpenters. Okay, I'll get back on script. I think Matthew makes sure we understand the significance of this story. This is a huge story in what Matthew's trying to do. So this next passage, verse 16 on, Jesus doesn't argue with the legalists, and this is prophetic. And Matthew wants us to see this, that Jesus' reaction was predicted in the Old Testament. So in verse 16 it says, Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah. By the way, this is Isaiah chapter 42. The prophet, Isaiah the prophet saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him. That happened at John's baptism. And he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Chapter 12, right now, this is what we're talking about today. 
He doesn't argue and he doesn't yell and scream and he doesn't try to tell other people anything other than follow what the Bible says and, and stick to it. Uh, verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. Um, we'll get to the back to the wick here in a sec. The word behold, again, is that word of, look, Matthew's trying to get us to see this. Look at this. Understand what just happened here. This is going to amaze anybody that reads Matthew. At least that's his assumption as a writer. The servant of God will be a stunning thing to the people. So God says in verse 18, that's a prophet speaking on behalf of God. So when it says, behold, that's actually God saying, behold. Look at what's going to happen. When, when my Messiah shows up, you're going to be amazed by them. They're going to not be what you expect. And Isaiah adds, so Matthew quotes this in verses 18, 19, and 20. He leaves out a sentence. So Matthew's picking and choosing a little bit. But he leaves out this, uh, in Isaiah, there's an added verse there that says, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law, which is a little more like after the resurrection, right? That's there. Matthew leaves that out at this point. The warning here that Jesus is giving to these Pharisees actually fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah. That's what Matthew's trying to say. Pay attention. All of these things that I'm telling you actually fit the word of God, not the other way around. So Matthew connects Jesus to prophecy. He's done that through his whole book. I like how Matthew does that because it's almost like Matthew saying, don't take my word for it. Read the Old Testament and know what it says. And if you know what it says, then what I'm telling you, my first person witness is going to blend. Verse 18 says, my servant, behold my servant whom I've chosen. Jesus is shown as a servant throughout all four of the Gospels. That's his character and nature. He serves and helps. He never does a miracle for himself. He never does a miracle for his, his closest disciples. He's not haughty. He doesn't lord over people. He's a servant. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen. Jesus' disciples go on to call themselves servants. Acts 3.13, 3.26. Paul calls himself a bondservant, the lowest form of servant. So the idea that we should do that too, we're just servants. And especially on the Sabbath, which is the context of this. We're just servants. We come to help and we come to serve. And, and we give that service with a joyful heart. Unlike the Pharisees, we don't try to control people. Like Jesus, we try to serve and heal people. He doesn't just say to the Pharisees, don't do that. He then goes shows them what they should be doing. Go out and make every effort to heal and serve. It's very different. So Jesus' overt physical healing is far superior than anything that we can do. But the same spirit that was in the disciples is in us. There's no reason to doubt that we shouldn't be out loving and caring and ministering to people on the Sabbath and every other day of the week, for that matter. It says they'll bring justice to the Gentiles. In the Greek translation, that's krisis. It's a whole system of truth or rightness. So when it says justice there, uh, what is that, verse 18? He will declare justice to the Gentiles. It, it, it essentially it means he's going to give them the entirety of God's law and will. It's not just he's going to, you know, send them to court or something like that. It, it's a much more broader use of the Greek term. He's going to show them rightness or justiceness, and that's what's going to happen when he does this. So when he shares the Sermon on the Mount and he's just sharing God's law with everyone, that's what he's doing. He separates 
and, he can t and, 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 and helps people learn how to separate a way of life, a right way of life, a just way of life is going to be given to the Gentiles. Verse 19 says, He will not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. People followed Jesus because he was worthy of being followed. We never get an example of Jesus getting up and fighting with people or picking fights. The only example that might be contrary to that is he goes into the temple and he sees evil and he starts overturning tables in the courtyard, right? But we don't see Jesus doing that on a normal basis. Most of his ministry, he doesn't angle for attention. He leaves multitudes and crowds. He doesn't try for publicity. He doesn't give himself a title. He doesn't prop himself up. It's a very different kind of ministry than John the Baptist had, which is why his disciples didn't get it last week. That's why the Pharisees don't get it this week. We never see Jesus pick up a megaphone, never gets on a soapbox, never shouts. So the Pharisees come to him with argument, um, and, and, and we see this return on Jesus that's not, he doesn't argue with them. He just shows them the word of God, and then in power shows them how wrong they are. The bruised and smoking passage there is both a reference to a wick. So a reed gets turned into a wick because you take the stiff reed and you bruise it all the way down. I don't know if you've ever, if you're a farm person, you know this, you put the reed in your mouth and you chew on it, but the fibers in it keep it intact. But if you get it nice and pliable, then you can use it as a wick. It's like a movable rope. So when you twist it and do that, you can actually get something that's bendable. So when it says it's bruised, it's to make it flexible like you would a rope. And then this idea of the smoldering or the smoking, um, if there's even a glimmer of hope, that's what God's kind of about here. So I want to read that. Let me read that verse one more time. A bruised reed he will not break. Jesus just isn't that rigid on things. And a smoking flax he will not quench. The bruised reed smoking flax could likely be a reference to the same kind of thing, a wick that goes into a candle or even the temple candle. So a smoking flax would be used for a lamp, and it only fires up when it's given fuel. So it's just kind of sitting there smoking and spoldering, but if you put gasoline on it, it will ignite. And that's kind of what's going on with, a, with this whole situation in chapter 12, is he's just smoldering. There's power in Jesus, and this servant, when you put fuel on it, it just ignites. And when these Pharisees go after them about, you know, breaking off some food and eating it, he then, the end result of that is he heals the entire town. And you see that God is so powerful, but he doesn't push that power on other people, but he looks for these opportunities, these areas. And his power is controlled and directed in what he does. So you may have an image of God as somebody who accuses us of our failings, but Jesus provides the opposite image. He's gentle and nurturing, and he takes the bruised and the, the people that are just smoldering with hope, and he ignites them. When you put the fuel of God's word and the fuel of the Holy Spirit, oil and lamps, if you put them together, the oil is throughout the Bible used as an image of the Holy Spirit. It's used for anointing kings. It's, it, it, you know, through, we'll get to that tonight in Samuel. Um, but, but this idea that you have a smoldering flax, what you do with a smoldering flax is you give it oil, and then it lights up and turns into a candle. And that's what's going on with Jesus' ministry is that he's flexible. Blessed are the flexible. They don't break. And he's, blessed are the warmed up because they're ready to go on fire. And that's what's happening with these disciples. It says he will not quench. 
No one stopped or was able to quench Jesus Christ. Even with the restrained potential power in every movement and every word, nobody quenched him. So what looks like something that's about to sputter out is actually something that's ready to be on fire. And so Matthew's bringing that passage in to say, this is what's happening with Jesus. This is the nature of Jesus. Here's a story. Here's how this connects to the Old Testament. And this is, Jesus was exactly what Isaiah predicted he would be. And this is one of those situations that models that for Matthew. So Matthew also doesn't miss how Messiah is going for the Gentiles. He adds that passage in there. Jesus first goes to the synagogue, and then he went out to everybody, and he gives mercy and hope to both the Jews and the Gentiles at the same time. He's a glowing ember. It's shown to the world. Verse 21, and this is where we'll end. We'll finish with verse 21. And his name, and, and in his name, the Gentiles will trust. Well, that's coming soon. That's the rest of Matthew. But he's made every effort to work with these Pharisees and show them the way. He's gone into all these towns in northern Israel, and his disciples have gone announcing his way. Uh, so this is just a, uh, a, fin a final uh, thumbing of the nose that the Pharisees are doing with Jesus. And there's going to be kind of a final break between Jesus and the synagogue. And Jesus is going to start to establish his kingdom on earth outside of the synagogue system. I think it would have made God, it would have made God so warmed and happy if the Pharisees would have just followed Jesus and the synagogue system would have been what the whole world has. But they didn't, and God's flexible. He's a bruised reed, but he doesn't break. His plan may go a different direction, but he just says, okay, we're going to establish a whole new system. He just got done teaching a couple chapters ago that you don't put old wine into new wineskins. Or no, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. And that's exactly what's happening. We got the teaching, then we get the example of it. He's not going to build his new kingdom in the synagogue system. He loves Israel. They're his nation. They're precious to him. They're there at the end of time. So he, they're part of the plan no matter what. But they're going to miss out on 2,000 plus years of blessing through the Holy Spirit that God's going to pour out on his church like a smoldering wick that just gets ignited into flame. And he's going to pour that out on the church and they're just going to miss out on it. Right? To the point where, where, where um, in the epistles it's, it says that the, uh, the joy of the Lord in the Gentiles is going to make the Jewish people um, jealous. And they're going to just be like, why do they have all this joy? It's our God they're worshiping, and they got all this joy, and they're writing all these songs and having fun and feasting. So Jesus takes time with the Pharisees. I think that's a thing of hope, that Jesus even cares for these people. And he's trying, and they're hard-hearted, and they don't go for it, and that's the narrative. But I just love that there's a God that's even trying to work with them and show them things. He could just be ignoring them altogether. And it was, I was an enemy of God before he started to show me things too. We all were. So there's a break here after 21. There should really be a chapter break here. Uh, verse 22 starts with the word then, um, which starts a brand new narrative for Matthew. That's how he transitions. Uh, so the Pharisees are, are pro progressively going from expectation to presumption <laughs> Now they hate and they're planning murder. And in the next chapters, they're going to go into false accusations. They're going to just start saying things about Jesus that aren't true. And they're going to make things up. And this is the path that we're on with the Pharisees. So um, just know that the Gospels are all comedies. They're not tragedies. They do end well. Uh, but there are some trials along the way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. And we don't come and open your Bible lightly, Lord. We... We want to do it with all reverence and all respect. 
Lord, we love you, and we just uh, help us to see and hear what you want us to see and hear. And Lord, I know your Holy Spirit is with us, and I, I know it speaks to each of us differently. So as we eat today in fellowship, Lord, I just pray you bless that food, but bless the conversations that we can tell each other what we heard and what this word made us think of today, that we can share with each other how the Spirit's moving in our heart and how your word is impacting our lives. So Lord, give us just the freedom to do that. Help us to make new friends and to connect as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. And may you just um, uh, be the God of our home and our, and our time together. May you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.